Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. All right. Well, we're going to continue in 1 Peter chapter 2. We've got another kind of controversial passage. And we'll start at verse 18, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And you'll see why I say it's controversial. It starts off, and it says, servants, some translation, it'll say slaves. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At first response, when we read this passage, we might be inclined to think that God is okay with slavery, that he is not against these things, but in a sense wants us to just like, hey, just go with it, it's going to be okay, and turn a blind eye to it. And when we think of slavery and we think of new world slavery, we think of, you know, the 12 million Africans who were kidnapped, taken from their country and brought to different places throughout the world. Uh, 
some two million of them died just in that journey. And we think the horrors of what that entails or, or of sex trafficking and things that take place. And our minds go to this place where we just think, how could God be okay with something like that? And so what I think we need to do is not have a more liberal reading of this passage, but actually a more faithful reading and a deeper understanding of what Peter is saying here. What God would say to a first century Jew living in the Roman Empire is going to be a lot different than what he is going to say to us in the 21st century North America. Not because the message is different, but because in order for us to get to where he wants us to be, he has to begin with where we are. And so it's important that we understand who he's talking to. Peter's instructions are given to a specific people in a specific culture at a specific time. We can't remove this passage of scripture from that context, otherwise we are going to have some problems. And so keeping it in that mindset, we want to look at what is Peter trying to convey what was taking place at this time, and what can we draw from this? How are we to take this passage written at this time to these people in this culture? And if this is God's word, how does it apply to us? Again, it's pointing us in the same trajectory. We're trying to get to the same place. Where was he writing this, and where are we today? And what is the trajectory that he's getting to? So first of all, what did it mean to be a slave in first century Rome, in the Roman Empire? What did that look like? And maybe how was it different from the New World slavery that we're familiar with that grew up in our more recent history? And I think it's important to realize that slaves at that time were not distinguished by their race that you couldn't see them and say, oh, they're a slave because of the color of their skin. They weren't distinguished by clothing or by economic status. That if a person was a slave, they could actually be making more money than a person who was free at that time. And so recognizing these things that they, they looked like everyone else at that time they weren't segregated. They could purchase property. They could even purchase their freedom in many cases. As opposed to the New World slavery, where basically you were kidnapped, you were the property of someone else, that wasn't quite the same at this time. Everyone was under the Roman rule. And if you were a nation like Israel, your laws were subject to their laws. And so there was this overrule that was there. And so in that sense, they were slaves under the Roman Empire. But again, there was a lot more autonomy available to the individuals than of when we think of slavery. And that's an important distinction because this is where Peter is at. These are the people he's talking to. And it's estimated that up to 40% of the population were slaves at this time. Think of that, 40% of all the people under the Roman Empire were slaves. That's a lot of people. 
Okay, that means that you knew a lot of people who were, quote, slaves. But again, it wasn't like, oh, you're a slave, I'm free. It only resulted in something, especially if it was in legal terms. If you needed some legality things in the Roman Empire, it provided you with some privileges, as opposed to if you weren't a Roman citizen. But otherwise, you had a lot more ability to kind of function in your life more than what we do think of slavery. Roman slavery, bond slaves, indentured servants, usually the only slaves, they were only slaves in productivity. In other words, what they did with their time and their skills is what was controlled by their slave owner. So it wasn't them as a person as much as it was what they could do, their work. And so that's why some translations will say servants instead of slaves, because they're trying to bridge that understanding that it wasn't just someone you owned, but someone you controlled what they did in their time. Basically, it would be like a boss today, but even more so, okay, because now I controlled all of your time and all of the, I could tell you when to go to work and I could tell you how much to work, those kinds of things. There was definitely a lot more control. There were no unions back in that time, okay? And of course, there's always abuses, there's always exceptions. Whenever you have power, you have the ability for abusing that power. And imagine having this kind of a power, how much abuse took place. So Peter is writing to people in this situation and this condition. Compared to the New World slavery that we're familiar where the entire person is now the property of that slave owner, where they could put them to death and they had no rights. They could do all kinds of terrible things and they could not give any kind of account for those things. And so there's a lot of differences, okay? African slavery was race-based. It was kind of the default was slavery for the rest of their life. And again, as I mentioned, it began by kidnapping them. So this is completely different in some senses, but definitely oppressive in many senses. And so what we're seeing is that Peter is writing to this group of people and he's trying to get them to think a certain way and to go a certain way. He is writing to Christians in this culture with the idea that he can't change the culture that they're in, but by their suffering in some way, in some capacity, they can actually help deal with their culture and actually bring a change to it through their suffering. In other words, we can't change the Roman Empire itself, but we can change who we are. And then by changing who we are, we can actually change the people around us. He's discipling them how to live out their faith in their conditions in a way that brings honor to God. If you're in this indentured servant mentality, how can you live in such a way that it brings honor to God and brings glory to him. Remember, though Peter has already talked to them in so many ways that is challenging the status quo of Rome, he's already loosening the knot of some of the, the ideas. He tells them that they are to live as though they are free. 
So even though they are under the rule of Rome, they are to live as if they're slaves to God, not slaves to Rome. They are to live as if Christ is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. He said that they are to honor everyone. Last time, last week we talked about, as well as honor the emperor. So he put everyone on the same plane as the emperor. So these are politically charged statements that Peter has made. He's not just being passive, it doesn't matter. But the way he is pushing this agenda, if you will, is very much like Christ himself. It's not done in a powerful way, it's done in a very submissive way. It's done in a way that begins with the character, not with trying to change the political system. And that's really important because he is actually transforming the culture by transforming the people in the culture. At 300 AD, Rome changed its political system to one accepting Christianity because basically Christians were becoming so numerous that they couldn't fight them. And so they said, well, this is something that's popular. It will now be a part of our system. How did that happen? It wasn't political. Again, it began individually making that change. Christianity didn't seek to change the, the status of slaves by protesting and rebelling against the established authorities. Instead, what Christianity did is change the status of the slaves within the Christian community of themselves. And that then became very appealing and it flourished among certain people. Remember the book of Philemon. Philemon, he's talking to a slave owner and he's talking him to receive back a slave because he is now your brother. See, that changes everything. Here's someone who ran away and Paul says, no, you need to receive him back because now he's your brother. And so this changes how people live in this culture. And it basically says, okay, now there isn't an owner and a slave. Now we are actually brothers. It did the same thing for women, which is going to be the next passage. We'll keep the controversy going. Because women were even in a worse condition because of their status at that culture at that time. They were the same as slaves in so many ways. And you think of that and you think, oh gosh, that's terrible. And it is. How does that change? They don't change the status of women in the culture. They change the status of women in their community. And then imagine if you're a woman who comes into this community and all of a sudden you have respect. And all of a sudden you are treated well as the equal. Same thing with the slaves. Imagine how appealing that is. You go into this place and now I'm freed. I I feel like I don't have to worry about these other things. And so it was very liberating in so many ways. This caused Christianity to flourish in the communities at the different times and situation. If we don't understand the theology of this and these commands, then we're liable to misunderstand God's position on these issues. Peter is not endorsing slavery. 
It's really important that we understand that. He is teaching these followers of Jesus how to suffer and maintain their freedom in Christ and out of respect and honor to God, not retaliate when they are mistreated. I want to retaliate when someone cuts me off on the freeway. Okay, I, I, <laughs> I got an amen over there. I am quick to want to retaliate whenever I feel any kind of injustice. Or when I see injustice, I, I read about something and my blood boils. And I just want to retaliate. I just want to put the hammer down. And I know a lot of people are like that. You see something and you just have this impulse to want to strike out against that. Peter is pointing to us, is pointing us to a different mindset. He, he's trying to get us to think not retaliatory way, in a retaliatory way. I don't know if that's a word. Is retaliatory a word? A it might be a word. If not, I just made it up. He's trying to teach us not to retaliate. Just like Jesus said, you've heard it say an eye for an eye. I'm telling you to turn your other cheek. You see, he's trying to teach us to think differently. Instead of thinking, I need to get this kind of justice, what I deserve, he's trying to teach us that what you want is to bring about peace and you want to do it in a way that is honoring to these people. That those who have power, they don't have the power to control how you respond. Even as he said earlier, live as free. See, you might be my slave owner, but I am free in Jesus. You don't really own me. Oh, you might control what I do in my time, but I'm living as a person who's enslaved to God and not to man. And so he's teaching us to think in these terms. And through the suffering and not retaliating, that they have the power of love that can actually bring about the kingdom of God. And it did. You see, by not acting in an impulsive way, I'm going to get back at you for what you've done to me. Instead of having this attitude of being, you know, a person who's going to take the mistreatment instead of retaliating is going to say, I'm going to honor you, God, and not retaliate. I am going to turn the other cheek. I am going to try and deal with this in a peaceful way, even as you did, that it changed the, the response of people. That those who have power don't have the power to control what you do, and through suffering and not retaliating, you have the power that can change them. The Christians of Peter's day were living in a hostile environment. It was very difficult, where it's not always possible to win someone by your conversation. You can't convert someone by just telling them about Jesus but what you can do is win someone by displaying a different attitude. And so we see Jesus' words, if someone compels you to go one mile, go two. What, what's he doing? He's saying, you don't control me, God controls me, and God wants me to show kindness to you who are trying to abuse me. And that just played a trip on people. 
What do you mean? What are you trying to be kind? You don't, you, you know, I, I, what do I do with that? You see, all of a sudden, you're not returning evil for evil. You're actually returning evil with good. Why? Because God is good. Because God cares about these people. Part of the theology, if you will, about this passage and what Peter's trying to present is that behind these commands to submit, they are grounded in a deep love for the souls of these other people. Peter asks those who are followers of Christ to forfeit certain rights so that they may be one for Christ. In other words, I'm going to be nicer than you deserve because I want you to have what I have. I'm going to be nicer to you than you really should be treated because I'm hoping that by doing that, I can win your soul and I can bring you into this relationship of Christ. According to Peter, the person who is lost, they trump any personal comfort or rights that an individual has. That an act in submissive in a submissive manner is to actually think of someone more than you think of yourself. Now, think about that in relationships with marriage. There's a whole new thing. We'll talk about that. That's a whole other topic, but it's the same principle. When you actually are not wanting to assert yourself, you're seeing someone as important. What happened in a relationship where everyone is trying to see the others as important. It takes away the pride. It takes away, it's my right. It starts leaving room open for actual conversation and concern. Because once we posture ourselves to want to get our own way, we really shut the door to a lot of conversation. At least that's been the case in my life. Not that I've ever, you know, been that way because I'm a man of God. I don't do those things. Just joking. Um, and, and verse 21, Peter says, for to this you have been called. So this, this is the end game. This is the point that he's trying to make. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is discipleship. We're to emulate what Jesus did. This is what we've been called to do, is to act like Jesus. How did Jesus act? When he suffered, he left us an example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't deserve to suffer, yet he did. And look what's happened to you because of that. Look at the benefit you've received because of his unjust suffering. It has brought salvation to you. It has brought new life to you. What happens when we do that? He's saying we have the ability to bring the same life to others if we walk in his steps. Suffering and not retaliating is the way of Jesus. It's also the path to faith. Because we trust him. You see... Instead of Jesus coming as they wanted, they wanted Jesus to come and do a drone strike over different areas of Rome, right? 
They wanted him to take out these bad people and these places of government. They wanted Jesus to, to get rid of the evils of Rome. And instead of doing that, he suffered and was crucified so that we could be healed. It's a different way of bringing about the kingdom of God. It's a different way than what we do and how we want to establish kingdoms. We do it the drone strike. We're going to take them out. Jesus said, no, I'm going to let them take me out, and I'm going to change you because of it. And so this is what we've been called to do, this attitude, this mentality. Now, think about some of the words of Jesus. The meek shall inherit the earth. Does that really work? If you're going to act this way, aren't you just going to get stepped over? Aren't people just going to abuse you? Isn't this going to just be a quicker way for them to conquer the good that you stand for? Is this going to work? Does it work? And there's a couple of examples we have historically where I think nonviolence has done what violence could never have done. Think of Mahatma Gandhi in India against the British Empire and his passive way to try and stop their rule over the Indian people where he would march they had a, a, you had to pay for salt. You had to pay the British government if you wanted to use salt. And he thinks salt is available everywhere. I don't have to pay for salt. And so they peacefully marched. I forget how many miles. It took like three weeks. He marched to the sea where he could just get a scoop of salt. And that was illegal. And on his march, he ended up gathering thousands and thousands of people who marched with him. And they couldn't do. They arrested some 100,000 people just for salt, getting salt. Think about that. And then all of a sudden, the absurdity of we've arrested 100,000 people because they got salt. They didn't do a protest against the government. They just went, all of them got salt peacefully, and finally said, okay, you can have your salt. Right? It's like it changed their government took rule away from the British Empire, gave it back to the Indian people without violence. Without violence. violence. It's, it is mightier than the mightiest weapon. Mahatma Gandhi said, nonviolence is the greatest force at the disposal of mankind. It is mightier than the mightiest weapon of destruction devised by the ingenuity of man. Nonviolence is more powerful it took back this government, gave it to the people through nonviolence. An amazing thing. Martin Luther King, we talked about this even last week in the Civil Rights Movement. In a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote to white pastors. And I want to read what he wrote to them because it's powerful. He says, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. 
And those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than men. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their efforts and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. How is it possible to live like this? How is it possible to make a change this big by doing something that would seem so little? In verse 22, Peter says, when he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself and trusting himself to him who judges justly. What if we could take that as our life motto? I will entrust myself to the one who judges justly. There are going to be so many things that I am powerless to change. So many injustices that happen, but I can always entrust myself to him who judges justly. What if I believed, really believed that God is the one who really judges? He's the one who has the final say. And if I do what pleases him, that that's all I have to worry about. What if we lived our lives in such a way that we really believed that and acted that out? What would happen? What happened in the first century? Because that's what they believed. And that's why they could stand even though they were oppressed. That's why they could rejoice. That's why they called themselves free even when they were slaves. Because they believed and trusted that God would do these things. These are difficult commands. There's nothing easy about what Peter is saying here. And you can translate it into our modern culture with your situations, with bosses, with family, whatever it is. Each one of them asks the followers to have faith in God, that God is in charge. That the follower of Christ is submit even to a pagan government while still having faith that God is sovereign and in charge over all. That you, Rome, might rule over this economy right now, but God rules over the earth. That you might have say into my freedoms to these extents, but God is the one who has say to my life and its destiny. And they lived with this power that the follower of Jesus is a slave to Christ. And if they submit to their harsh master, having faith that their suffering will not go unnoticed by God who sees everything, who blesses and who rewards, gave them hope. Whenever we see oppression, 
we see the gospel flourish. It happened in communist China. When they finally opened the bamboo curtain after the reign of Mao and all the, the persecution of anyone who was from the Western mindset, when they finally opened the bamboo curtain under that oppressive regime, they found six million Christians thriving. How? Because whenever there's oppression, the hope of Christ flourishes. You think of black slavery that happened in the United States. You think of gospel music that came from that. You think of all the beautiful faith that came from that. Why? Because in those times of persecution, the gospel flourishes. Because we have a hope that's bigger than the oppression that holds us. It's difficult commands, but this is where God grows. And this is where he blesses. The major motive behind these commands is really found in that verse 21. For to this you have been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Yay! I've been called to suffer. Yay, that's great. You came here thinking I was going to say God loves you, right? Well, he does, but he's also called us to be like him. And in this, he's giving us a promise there's actually freedom found here in submission to Christ first and then to what we have to deal with in authority. See, things are, are different now. So often the contemporary church, it, it, it struggles. In fact, the, the last portion of Martin Luther's or one of the portions in his letters that he wrote, he says, things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. Instead of being someone who wants to bring about change through how we conduct ourselves, which Martin Luther did in his civil rights movement, we see people wanting just to keep things as they are. He continues in his speech, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irre irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. I think that's prophetic. Christ's pattern is trust and faith in God. And by our conduct, God will break through with a transformative, resurrective power. 
as we care and love people no matter who they are, where they are, it changes not only them, it changes us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, God is seen by how we conduct ourselves. God is seen when we truly care about the people in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in Nazi Germany he was hiding Jews from Nazi and trying to get them to escape. He was in prison later. He was killed. And he wrote that pain is a holy angel who shows us treasures that would otherwise remain forever hidden. Through him, men and women have become greater than through all the joys of the world. It must be so. And I tell myself this in my present situation over and over again. The pain of suffering and of longing, which can often be felt even physically, must be there. And we cannot and need not take it away, but it needs to be overcome every time. And thus there is even a holier angel than the one of pain. That is the one of joy in God. That you can have joy in God even in difficult circumstances. What Peter is telling those followers of Jesus at this time in Rome is that there is joy to be found in God. Trust the one who judges justly because he is the one who will care for you. And he's telling us the same thing today in our current situation in our current condition, which is much better than it was in theirs. But every place in society, no matter where you are, the key and the trajectory is the same. Have faith in God. Trust the one who judges justly. Conduct yourself in such a way that people will see God in your conduct and glorify God who is in heaven. Instead of repaying evil for evil, repay evil with good. Show the love of God to the people, even though they don't deserve it. Because at one time, you didn't deserve it. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the example that we are to walk in. This is the freedom we've been called to. It's not easy. But it works. It changes cultures, it changes people, and it changes us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this time. I pray it has been informative and encouraging in some ways. God, may we understand that we are free, and may we live our lives in such a way that causes disturbance, Lord, that causes unrest, because we yield ourselves to you and we love like you love. We, we care so much that it affects everyone and everything around us, Lord. May we be that kind of church. May we be those kinds of people. And I thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. 
You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.